two classes concurrent with this one. There's one over in the Annex, the class that was taught here last quarter is now being taught over there. And then a ladies' class has begun this quarter. It's just a short walk over there into the chapel. So ladies, you're invited to participate in that if you'd like to. Otherwise, this is a class that's going to be in a study of the book of John. And we did our introduction a couple of weeks ago. And tonight we're going to look at a couple of the signs that we find in the book of John. Before we do that, though, I have a few folks that you want to keep on your prayer list. Irene Baker and Laura Galloway's dad, John Dryden, they are in the final stages of cancer. Sandy Bonham is seriously ill with cancer. Martha Eaton's struggling with pain in her foot, and she's been evaluated for that. They're waiting several weeks to make some determinations about whether or not to do surgery. Austin Wentz, we want to continue to remember, although the good news was that his cancer was in remission. Joan Mormon's here, but she's still got problems with her shoulder. We pray that she'll have a full recovery that way. Verlin Davis has Alzheimer's, and uh, they're constantly asking prayers on her behalf. Brian Rowland is still dealing with some issues with his foot, so please please remember him in your prayers. Uh, Jackson and Jenny Carol Degler, remember them. They had the house fire. And also um, Cameron and Jana Beard, they had a house fire as well. Those are folks in serious need, so let's see that we can be a support to them. Terry Green, who's Ricky's older brother, had surgery for cancer, and they were referring him to another group because they didn't get it all and just kind of waiting to see what the next steps are. Sue Mason's not here tonight because she's just not feeling well, having some problems with regulating her blood pressure. And doctor maybe even thinks somewhat related to a recent bout with COVID. Are you surprised to hear that? She's also got a brother, Ricky Ross, had some surgery for blood clots in his lungs, and that was yesterday. And they had to do that procedure where they, doesn't sound good, where they scrape the lungs. Uh, So very serious, and please pray that he'll recover. So Larry was tested as having COVID, then found out he didn't have COVID, then he did get COVID, Now he's clear of COVID, but guess who has COVID now? Joyce has COVID. So remember them in your prayers. Uh, Jacqueline Jumper gave birth to Laney Jumper. Now, I don't know if that's going to be Laney or Laney, but remember them as they're recovering. And I think I have a picture of the baby. Ask me. I'll try to sort through all the baby pictures I've got to find it. Sympathy is extended to Linda Garrett and the death of her sister, Peggy. Uh, That's also Kim Fowler's aunt. Uh, She was a lifelong member of the Strickland Congregation in Corinth. Uh, Joanne Roberts, we want to extend sympathy to her and the death of her brother Richard's wife, Margaret Horsch. They were in Missouri. And sympathy is also extended to Bridget Williams and the death of her mother, Mary Jane Hornberger of South Haven. Well, do you have anybody else you want to put on the list? Mary Don Taylor, he passed away with COVID four years ago. Remember his family. Okay. 
Sorry about that. Okay. Yes. We continue trying to train agents. I called a family in last night to go back to Mississippi before he left. Hadn't heard today. I think he's still holding on, but it's not good. Okay. Sorry about that, too. We sing my favorite song in the whole world. No, not necessarily, but I do want this song at my funeral. So please remember that because Anita tends to forget it. But it's 590. 590. We'll sing the first verse, then we'll have our prayer set. 590. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my time, my home. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your blessings today. What a beautiful day you gave us. We thank you for the end of this day when right here in the middle of the week, we can be together to study your word. And we just pray, Lord, that these things will build us up in our faith. We pray for those who aren't able to be here and those who are struggling. We're praying your comfort and if it's your will, we pray for their recovery. Ask your blessings on Irene Baker and John Dryden in final stages of cancer. We pray for Sandy Bonham that her treatment's going to provide relief for her. We ask your blessings on Martha Eaton that her foot will respond to treatments. Pray for Austin Wentz that his health will get stronger. He'll be strong. We ask your blessings on Joan she recovers from the injury to her shoulder. We pray that she'll be able to avoid surgery if it's possible. Please bless Verlin Davis with good days and for those who are her caregivers. We pray for Brian Rowland in the recovery for his foot. We pray for Jackson and Jenny Dagler and also for Cameron and Jana Beard as they both their families sustain losses from fire. We ask your blessings on Terry Green that he can get treatment that's going to help him to heal and do well. We ask your blessings on Sue Mason that her health can get regulated and she'll be back with us very soon. And we pray for our brother Ricky that his treatment was a success. Please bless jo uh, Joyce Morgan as she's dealing with COVID right now and we pray that she'll be okay. We also pray for uh, Juanice Floyd and for her strengthening, just get her energy back. We ask your blessings on Lainey Jumper, who was born this week. We pray that she'll grow strong. We pray for Jacqueline 
and her recovery too. And uh, we just rejoice that child born into such a wonderful family. We pray your comfort on Linda, the death first sister, on Joanne, the death first sister-in-law, and on Bridget and the death of her mother. We pray that you'll comfort them, but also motivate us to reach out and be a source of encouragement too. We pray for Larry Taylor's family as he's died unexpectedly from results of the virus. We, we just pray that uh, you'll just bless them and, and help them to get through a difficult time. And we pray for Trent Eaton's family as apparently he's come to the very end and we we just pray, Lord, that you'll help the time that they do have to be meaningful and that they can create a, a, a good memory. Uh, Lord, bless us as we're studying your word tonight and help it to make the impression on us that you have designed it to make. Help us to grow in our faith and to have such a strong and solid faith that we'll never be moved from it. And then help us too to be so excited about what we know, the things we experience in your word that we just can't help but share it with somebody. And thank you for those who shared it with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, do we, do we have the, the slides tonight? Not yet. We're still working on it? Okay. So we're, we're studying the book of John. Tonight we're going to, Lord willing, look at two different sections. One's going to be in John chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of that text. That actually describes for us Jesus turning the water into wine. And we're going to use that to demonstrate His power over quality. And then the second one that we're going to look at comes from chapter 4 and verses 43 to 54. That one is going to be the healing of the nobleman's son. And it's going to demonstrate for us the power that Jesus had over distance. Okay, so uh, actually put on the slides a wonderful display of scriptures. So I want to encourage you to get your Bible. And we're going to look at John chapter 2, the first 11 verses of that. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. I want to stop right there and just make an analysis. So, what about Mary and this wedding? What's your impression? Why is she there? Invited guests, yes? Yeah, part of, part of community, of family. And, you know, there are big events. You invite the people that are most important to you. But what's interesting here that is not only Mary involved, but in verse 2 we find out that Jesus is here along with, it says, his disciples. They're also invited. Now, if you've been keeping track, and by the way, one of the assignments that we have in this class is that we're going to be reading this book. Doesn't that go without saying? Nod your head this way. 
We're studying the book of John, so I'm, I'm expecting that you're going to be reading through this book. As you read through the first chapter, you saw not only the declaration of who Jesus is and of John's preparation of him, but also you saw the first instances beginning back at verse 40 or so, of Jesus introducing himself to a handful of disciples. So up until this point, we don't have all of the disciples represented, but we have a handful of them. For instance, we have Andrew, and we have Peter, his brother. And then those two guys, according to verse 44 of chapter 1, were from the city of Bethsaida. It might not be surprising to you, given that they were fishermen, that that means literally the house of fish. (laughs) Well, there was another guy, according to verse 44, who was also from Bethsaida. Anybody know who that was? Starts with a P and ends with a P. It has an illa in it. Philip, Philip. Okay, so Philip is from the same town of Peter and Andrew. Philip also took it upon himself when he learned that Jesus is the Messiah with the instigation of John the Baptist. He shared that with a fellow by the name of Nathaniel. Anybody know how the other Gospels refer to him? Not Nathaniel, by the way. Bartholomew, okay. Uh, Two of the longer names, right, (laughs) of of those disciples. So we got Peter and Andrew. We've got Philip, who then leads Nathaniel to Jesus. And Jesus, you know, has a beautiful conversation with him and has converted him to discipleship. And then, of course, the one who's kind of the spectator telling us all about this is the namesake of the book, John, right, who was also in business with Peter and Andrew, but also his brother, James. So most likely, you have Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, and we know John, but most likely also James. So about five of the disciples are there with Jesus. Now verse 3 says, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Uh, by the way, if if you are having a wedding feast, and, and usually a wedding feast lasted about a week or so. So if you've had this great event, you've invited the community and, and your family, uh, how many people are going to know that you're running out of supplies? You're broadcasting that? Uh, no. The host knows about it, and he's wanting to keep that on the down low, Right? Except that Mary knows about it. So what, what just, you know, just an estimation of the situation. What does that tell you about Mary? Is she just one of those outliers in the family that somebody thought to invite to the wedding? Yeah, you, you get the idea. She's heavily involved in what's going on here. And so she, she knows about the situation with the wine and she brings Jesus into the fray. Now, I will tell you that since I was old enough to be in Bible classes, that anybody who ever studied John chapter 2 walked on pins and needles about the subject matter of wine in this text. And as I've gotten older, I begin to ask myself, why would that be, why would that be true? 
I guess it's for fear that somehow or other we would suggest that Jesus was somehow involved with alcoholic beverages and that somehow someone might connect that with him and he'd be a sinner. Here's something that I know about Jesus from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Do you know what that is? Jesus was tempted in all points just like whom? Just like we are, except what? Except without sin. Someone asks, and maybe you do. I know I've always asked this question. Okay, so, so here's Mary wanting wine and bringing Jesus into it. And as we will find revealed in this text, Jesus complies and takes and does his very first miracle here in Cana, the turning of water into wine, miraculous activity. In fact, it's such an amazing event that takes place that John says, of all of the events that I could talk about in Jesus's life, this is one of the seven that I'm going to incorporate into this book whose goal it is to create belief in Jesus as the Son of God. This is the event I'm going to use one of the seven, in order to instill that in you. Okay, so was Mary, was Jesus encouraging people to drink alcoholic beverages? Well, first of all, let's back up for a minute. Were they encouraging anybody to do anything? The answer to that question would be, well, no. (laughs) No, they're just interested in providing supplies. Okay, Not necessarily encouraging anybody to do it, but certainly involved in making sure that the supplies are there. So, okay, you know, that's semantics. Still involved with the wine. So what gives about the wine? I think it's kind of an interesting study to think about two different things related to wine. Number one, sensible use. And number two, sinful use. Here's what I mean by that. Someone look at Psalm 104 and verse 15. Psalm 104 and verse 15. Anybody have that text? And we'll read it for us. Okay, now, I'll give you a little bit of setup for this text. Psalm 104 is describing the things that God has created and how great they are. So among all the things that we find God has created, right here in verse 15, what has God created? He's created wine, or at least the mechanism by which wine could be created. And question, I ask you, For what purpose does it exist according to this text? Well, it makes glad the heart of man. Wine makes glad the heart of man. Okay. So in that depiction, there is wine being used in a sensible sort of way. When wine is used as was intended and created by God, what is its result? intoxication and and drunkenness as God intended? No, what does it do? It makes glad 
makes glad the heart. Okay? And I'll not have you read all of this, but go to Numbers chapter 15, verses 5 to 10. In that text, you have a description of wine being used in terms of offerings. In this case, it's the use of a libation. Anybody know what a libation is? A libation is literally when you take... Oh, we've got slides. It's literally when you take a liquid and you pour it out as an offering. Well, this libation was used in conjunction with the burnt offering. So when the burnt offering was given, the wine was used and poured on the sacrifice. A sensible use of that which God had created. In the book of Deuteronomy, let's see if that's one of the slides. Yeah. Okay, yeah, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 14 and verse 26, that was kind of unusual because there you've got, okay, so people have their, they give their tithes, they go to the place that God has designated for a place of worship. You go to the worship, you bring what you have provided for the worship. Maybe it was a lamb, maybe it was wine uh, to be offered as a drink offering. Whatever it was, you bring it for purposes of worship and offering sacrifice. Well, let's say you live a long way off. Oh, it's going to be a burden, Lord, for me to have to carry this lamb or these other things with me to the place of sacrifice. The Lord said, that's fine. You don't have to do that. What you do is you go ahead and sell those things, take the money that you gain off of that, and then you come to the place that I've designated for worship, and then you can buy the things that are necessary for it. One of the things that they could buy with it, guess what? Take your money when you get there and buy the wine that was going to be used for purposes of the drink offering. But also, what does he say? He says, you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires in terms of that sacrifice for the oxen, the sheep, for wine or similar drink. For whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God. You say, now, Ken, before we get too far into this, you keep saying wine. Was the wine, um, did it have alcohol in it? And so far as I can tell, yes, yes, it had alcohol in it. That's why it was called wine. There are actually terms both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that give us an indication of what stage the grape juice was in. Almost always in the New Testament scriptures, that word oinos, which is used in several passages we're going to look at, that one has to do with wine that had alcohol in it. Well, okay, Ken, so tell me something about this wine that Mary is encouraging Jesus to participate in providing. Well, typically that wine was cut two or three different times. It was a table wine. It was a wine that was designed to be used to eat with. Okay? So these things, sensible uses, don't don't really have to do with ingesting it, except for the last one here, and that's from 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23. That text you've probably heard before. So apparently Timothy's got stomach issues. What do you do when you have stomach problems? You take medicine for it, right? And you say because you have a prescription, that makes it not sinful, right? 
I don't know, I didn't do the research to find out when prescriptions came along, but back then, not so much. So when Timothy had a problem, actually the wine that had alcohol in it was used for what's called medicinal uses. That is, he ingested it. Now, let me say something about sin. Sin is sin. If a thing in and of itself is sinful, it doesn't, there aren't any exceptions to that. You commit the sin, you're responsible. If a thing can be used in a sensible way as opposed to a sinful way, the scriptures will indicate that that is such. And here's, here's one of those. Hey, you know what? Use a little wine. Why would you use the wine? Because it has medicinal purposes in it. Okay. So there are sensible applications, and then there, well, for lack of a better way of describing it, sinful uses. I don't want us to get mixed up in our heads that wine is only associated with sinful things. It is not. It seems to me, in light of Psalm 105, verse 15, that in a controlled and reasonable use of wine, it would tend to do what to the spirit of man? Make you feel happy, right? Lift you up, make you feel good. If you're at a wedding feast, how do you want to feel? This is the worst wedding I've ever been to. No, it's a joyous and happy occasion, right? And so providing the wine seems like a reasonable application of the use. And by the way, not of a hundred proof alcohol, but, but of a wine with, very, with a very little alcohol content in it. In fact, by the way, you'd have to drink a lot of this in order to become drunk on it. And we'll see that indicated a little bit later. Okay, so there's a sensible way to use it, a right application, a controlled and responsible use of alcohol, wine. What about the uncontrolled use? What, what, if, what if I use wine in an excessive sort of way. Well, how about to start 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10. That passage includes, among other sins, the sin of drunkenness. Anybody know what drunkenness is? Anybody ever heard of it? It's a plague on our society, right? That is when somebody uses any kind of alcohol, whether it is downing several bottles of wine or hitting hard liquor, when they use alcohol in excess, what does it do to their mind? It alters it. Interesting, not here, but a place that I, I used to be, we had a full-time uh, psychiatrist there, and I, I had an experience with a person who was drunk, and I was trying to reason with them. And she said, she just laughed at me. She said, come here, I want to show you something. They did some scans of people who were intoxicated, the brain scans. Turns out that much of your logic, reasoning parts of your brain are turned off when you're filled with alcohol, when you're drunk. You absolutely lose control of your mental faculties, of your ability to reason. You ever heard of being sober-minded? I mean, that's the idea. To be sober-minded means I've got my mind under control. To be drunk means that you have given that control over to the, over to the alcohol that you have exceeded. Now, there are two things I wanted to notice from, um, 
1 Timothy chapter 3. The first one, verse 3, actually has to do with qualifications for elders. The second one is qualification for deacon. I once heard someone ask, well, now wait a minute, why, why is the intensity related to the drinking of wine different for the elder and the deacon? For instance, what they said, uh, for the elder, they're not to be given to wine. It was thought that it just means that he doesn't have a taste for it. And that the, the second one, chapter 3, verse 8, he's not given to much wine. Oh, well, since he's a deacon, he must not be as responsible. That is not the idea here. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, not given to wine literally means not addicted to it. Actually, that's the stronger phrase. He's not to be a, guess what? He's not to be an alcoholic. He's not to be a drunk. Wait a minute, does that make sense for an elder in the church, yes or no? Because he's to be what? Sober-minded. That's one of the qualifications. He's supposed to have his mind in the game. So literally, not addicted to wine. And then the second one, there is very much akin to it. Different words are used, but the same idea is conveyed. Not given too much wine means that he doesn't keep doing what? Like at this wedding feast, for instance, okay? We've got so much wine, and you just keep going at it. What does that say about you? You're addicted to it, aren't you? You are overcome with it. You can't settle for a little reasonable amount of wine. You've got to go to where? To excess. Here's something that's always amazed me. This isn't a wine application. This is a beer, alcohol um, application. It's always amazed me. Like, for instance, when I sit down in an evening and I crack open a Diet Coke. Were you worried there for a second? I sit there and I drink that. When I finish that 12 ounces, you know how much more Diet Coke I want? This much, zero. I am full up with the Diet Coke. And yet, when someone drinks beer, for some reason, the effect that it has on their body becomes practically insatiable. It is like a matter of pride for a person to sit down and drink a six or a 12 pack. I'm telling you folks, I couldn't imagine putting down 12 Diet Cokes in succession. I just couldn't imagine it. And yet there are those who literally, as this text says, are given to, addicted to it, or, or are desirous of very much wine. Okay, so anybody that, that wants to look at, look at what Jesus was going through and say, yeah, you know, I, maybe we can just, you know, we'll be social drinkers, we'll be okay, because after all, you know, Jesus was there at that wedding feast and, and he provided wine for everybody. That is not the application here. Neither is it the idea that, you know, we just have free reign to do what we want to, and very much is very much the opposite of that. Now, I will make, I will make this declaration about myself. I have never in my lifetime sat down and drank alcoholic wine, nor do I encourage anybody to drink it, nor do I suggest that that is something somebody might have kind of in their wheelhouse to, to, 
to participate in if, if it's their desire. I, I do not see that. And I will tell you the reasons. Some of them are personal that I won't share with you. But some of them are right here, right out of the Bible. Okay? Why is it that just diving into a life of alcoholic drink, a bad idea? Well, for one, and, and some people would use Romans 14, 21. I don't think that's a great application. They say, well, you know, if you drink the wine or the meat, that can be a stumbling block. That's really not having to do with alcoholic versus non-alcoholic. That's having to do with sacrifices that were offered to idols. Okay, that's not a direct application to our text. These things, however, these things, however, are... Well, back up, back up. How do I back up? Did I do it? Okay, yes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to go back to 9. Uh, Verse 10 is the one that includes the idea of drunkenness. But verse 9 tells us plainly that those who are in those categories, what about their eternal future? They're going to be lost. You are not going to heaven if the lifestyle that you've chosen is in excess with alcohol. You say, well, okay, well, what if I take a sip of alcohol? That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about diluted wine here. We're talking about someone who becomes excessive with the alcohol to the extent that what's happened to them? They've lost control. A person is not going to heaven if that's the lot that they have chosen. This text from Ephesians 5, verse 18, I I find this, it's kind of ironic. He says, you know, don't fall into excess like you do with the alcohol, right? But when it comes to your involvement with the Lord, with the Spirit, be in excess that way. In other words, if you are going to lose control, what you should do is open yourself up, loosen your control so who can have it? Not alcohol, but the Lord, the Holy Spirit, okay? And then these, maybe you've seen these before. I, I just, I think especially from the book of Proverbs, book of wisdom, that you, you have got some indication as to what happens when you get off on the wrong track. Wine is a mocker. Why is wine a mocker? It does. And it says, ah, you know, there's nothing to it. Drink me, drink me, drink me. Wait. It's one thing to drink you. It's another thing to become, what was it with the elders and the deacons? Too much of it. Overwhelmed with it. Seeking it out. Looking for it. Uh, and this is a warning from Proverbs 31. I thought it was pretty good. Oh, oh, Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine nor for princes intoxicating drink. Why? You're the king, you're the prince. Why is that a bad idea? Because when you become drunk again, you lose mental control, mental, mental faculties. You forget the law altogether. And who knows what kind of crazy decisions you will make. Anybody know anybody that's been intoxicated that made a bad idea, made a bad decision? Anybody know anybody? Yeah, I know lots of them. In fact, that typically is the thing, right? The bad choices that come along with it. He says, don't do that. But notice this, verse 6. I think this is maybe the uh, forgotten stepchild here. There is a use for those things. Remember 
Psalm 104 verse 15. Alcohol is for what purpose? Why was it created? Kind of lightens the, lightens the spirit, gives strong drink to him who's perishing. What would that do to somebody who's on their deathbed? Did they have morphine back here? No, so it lessens the, right? Um, also wine, and notice he didn't choose strong drink, because you give a lot of that to somebody, what happens to them very quickly? Become intoxicated. But give wine, because it's already what? It's diluted two to three times. Give that wine to somebody who has a bitter heart. Why? Because it was designed to do... What was it designed to do? Lift them up to give them a lighter spirit. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. And then this is the number one text you want to turn to when you want to scare somebody out of the decision to drink alcohol and ruin their life. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Guess who? The drunk. The person who succumbs to the excess of alcohol. And the subsequent verses will very easily tell you the troubles that come along. Okay, so Jesus is not there to intoxicate the wedding party, okay? Mary doesn't have in mind, Jesus, can you make us some more wine so we can just get these people loopy and have a grand old time? We want to party! That is not what this is. In fact, the purpose of this whole scenario is not to, not to bring accusation on Jesus or to somehow show Mary in a bad light. The whole purpose of this, one of seven, is to demonstrate that Jesus is what? He's the Son of God. So what we see unfolding here ought to impress us in, in an incredible way. So Jesus says to a woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Have you heard that before? Man, Jesus says that a lot in this book, as a matter of fact. And if you're jotting down notes, I'll give you a five to add to this one. You'll see it again in chapter 7, verse 30, and again in chapter 8 and verse 20. In both those cases, he's looking forward. My time hasn't come yet. Beginning in chapter 12, at verse 23, for the very first time, he says, my time has come. And then again, chapter 13, verse 1, and then chapter 17, verse 1. All of those are indicating that Jesus knew something. And what is it that he knew? He knew his death was coming. He was preparing, not just himself, his psyche was already ready. But he was preparing his disciples for the inevitable. So my hour is not yet come. His mother and his servants, whatever he says, you, you do it. Isn't that like a mother? You know, this is my son. He can handle this. Son, you got this? Wait, my hour hasn't come. Okay, he'll take care of it. It's like she's not listening. I just kind of think that's a funny segment. Now, there were there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. 20 or 30, well, let's go to 25. So you have 25 times 6, that's 150 gallons. If each serving was half a pint, which is another way of saying a cup, that would be 16 per gallon. You do the math, that's over 2,400 servings that Jesus was about to prepare in those big cisterns. Now, they were for, for the purification of the Jews, which meant that those were big enough that people actually could be immersed, be baptized in those waters. Those waters were for purifying things. And so big, big things, 
They got a lot of, a lot of water in them. They're already set aside. The water is to the, to the rim itself. And so we're all set. We've got, we've got the means, the mechanism. Jesus said, fill the water pots. They filled them to the brim. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. They took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You've kept the good wine until now. Was this just water and they're under a delusion? Shake your head this way. No, no. The expert the one whose reputation is on the line, tastes what has been turned to wine, and what does he declare? It's the very best. Now, what do you mean it's the very best? It's the good stuff, right? It's not like Jesus somehow worked a miracle in which he got by, or somehow fooled people, or maybe he found, you know, a little bit of wine, or maybe there'd been some wine laying around, kind of mixed it in the water and called that good enough. That is not what happened here. Jesus, through the power of God, a miracle has worked. The Messiah, the chosen of God, has turned water, literal water, that had been used for purification into wine. Not just any old wine or a wine that will get by, but the what? The absolute very best. Now, verse 11 tells us something of significance. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and Okay, here's the purpose. He's, this is the very first of these miracles, the first of seven. It sets the stage for what is to follow. What was the purpose of this having happened? To bring, starts with a G, glory to whom? T to Jesus. Jesus is supposed to... Now, what does glory mean? You get the attention, right? Got the spotlight on you. Jesus, by doing this miracle... Jesus did lots of miracles... He sure did. Did all kinds of miracles in lots of places. But Jesus did this miracle and it put the spotlight on him as the son of God. It was to his glory. And not only that, his disciples did what? They believed him. Please keep this in your mind as we go along in our studies. The purpose of these things. Lots of extraneous things we can talk about. All oh, these outlier lessons. Great. But please remember, the purpose of all of this is to develop belief in Jesus Christ. What happened to those disciples, that handful that had been with Jesus there on that occasion? Boy, they believed. Okay, we're going to stop here. Didn't get to two of them tonight, but we have to quit. Thank you so much for your attention.
very happy that you're here tonight. It's good to see everyone. Uh, we are especially thankful that uh, we, for those who may be visiting with us tonight, we want you to know what an honor it is uh, to have you with us tonight. We hope that you'll come and be with us anytime that you can. We'll meet Sunday morning at 930 for our worship. And then we've got wonderful Bible classes for all ages on a Sunday evening at 5, and we would love you to come and be a part of that on Sunday. As far as announcements tonight, uh, please pick up a copy of the bulletin if you've not done so, and you'll find probably as updated of a list on the sick as you're going to find. And so uh, please check that list, and let's do what we can to encourage uh, those that are sick, uh, dealing with covid uh, dealing with other ailments as well, those who've lost loved ones. And uh, we need to be conscious of the need to encourage other people as much as possible. So please do so. For our devotional tonight, Turner uh, Foster will be leading our singing and Carter Sweeney uh, will dismiss us in prayer. The song before the lesson will be Zion's Call, 625. Zion's Call sweetly rings over land and sea, giving us to ramp above. While the light of the throne shines for you and me, let us yesterday, as a lot of new stories do, but this one particularly caught my attention because of its religious connection. I'm just going to kind of read part of it. It says here, and, and you may have read this, a Catholic priest incorrectly performed thousands of baptisms by changing one word, making those baptisms invalid. The Diocese of Phoenix said all of the baptisms he has performed until June 17, 2021, are presumed invalid. Father Andres Arango resigned from St. Gregory Catholic Church in Phoenix after it was determined that he used the words we 
baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit instead of using the correct phrase, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, the issue with using the word we is that it's not the community that does the baptizing. Rather, it is Christ and him alone who presides at all over the sacrament. And so it's Jesus Christ who baptizes, they say. Now, because of his error, all the baptisms that he has performed until June 17, 2021 are presumed invalid, which is over 20 years. And for those in the Catholic faith, the baptism is a sacrament in which people, typically infants, have water poured over their foreheads, which symbolizes purification and admission to the church. Now, there's a couple of things that immediately popped into my mind when I read that particular article. First of all, it's still quite a common practice in the religious world today for infants to be baptized. And that's because of the false belief and the false teaching that babies are born in sin. In fact, John Calvin once said, there are some babies in hell not even a span long. And yet we know, and I'm not going to go into the details tonight, the Bible teaches explicitly that babies are born pure and sinless. Jesus said, if you don't become like little children, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. A second observation that I think needs to be made is when we just simply look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and what the requirements are in order to be baptized and to be saved. You know, the Bible says one has to hear in order to be saved. One has to then be willing to believe. Can a little baby believe in order to be baptized? The Bible says believe and be baptized. A little baby can't believe. What about repentance? Can a baby repent? Peter said in Acts 2 and verse 38, repent and be baptized. Now, I guess a baby might need to repent of a dirty diaper or maybe spitting up all over your new outfit, but that's probably about it. Babies are innocent. They're sinless. They have nothing of which they need to repent of. What about confessing Christ as the Son of God? Babies can't even talk, right? They can't talk at all. They scream and yell. So babies simply aren't qualified for that. And then baptism must take place. Baptism is immersion in water. And of course, babies would not be immersed. No religious organization would practice such. And so I wanted to share that with you tonight just to kind of get you to look at what the Bible says about salvation. And maybe when you're talking to your religious friends and neighbors at school or on the job, you might could just kindly and gently point out such things so that people might be willing to go to what the Bible says and do what the Bible says rather than what some preacher or what some man-made religion might teach. And so tonight, we need to put our faith in God. We need to trust God with all of our hearts and it may be tonight that there's some here or one here that needs to obey the gospel. You need to become a Christian. You need to have your sins washed away. 
If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God tonight and you're willing to turn away from your sins and repent and serve the Lord, if you acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, then even tonight you can be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And so tonight, if you're subject to the invitation, we ask that you come now while we stand and sing. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I worship you and to study your word. Father, we have many of our number who are sick, many who have lost loved ones. We ask that you comfort them as only you can. Father, we ask that you go with us throughout the remainder of this week and help us to take every opportunity we have to introduce someone to your word or to bring someone back to your word. Father, help us to go out our daily lives and live in a manner be pleasing unto thee. Forgive us for we have failed thee. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.